Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to James Palmer, CEO and co-founder of Silentium Defence. Welcome, James. Good morning, James. How are you doing? I'm well. Now, Silentium. It's kind of a classic dual-use technology. I think your background, you came out of a long career in defense science and technology and co-founder and chief executive of Salentium now. Just talk us through what's the technology and what's your first kind of use case application? Yeah, certainly, James. So I guess start with the technology. What we are commercializing through Salentium Defense is a technology called Passive Radar. It's a little bit different to the traditional surveillance technologies that have been used in probably commercial and defense applications. I mean, I can dive into a little bit about how it works, but I guess what we're trying to do is to provide information for end users and decision makers about what's happening in their environment to help support the decision-making process. So, you know, we can talk about example commercial applications where we think our technology could have impact, you know, things like drones operating in vicinity of areas where they shouldn't be. How do you find them? You know, there's a bunch of technologies that might be able to see them, but it won't pick up everything. So what we're trying to do is to support that. All right. Tell me what passive radar is. The way we normally describe passive radar actually is in the context of a traditional active radar, because I think more people are familiar with that, right? So if you'll permit me to talk about how an active radar works for a second, I can then differentiate it to make the difference. So an active radar works by sending out a blast of radio frequency energy into the environment that will bounce off of objects that are in the environment that might be moving around, and then it'll receive the echoes that come back from that radiated energy. When it gets the echoes back, it can work out how far away things are, how fast things are moving, what direction they're going in, those sorts of parameters, which allows it to create a picture of moving objects in the environment that you can see what's going on. Fantastic technology works very well, but in the act of sending out that blast of radio frequency energy, you need to first and foremost have a spectrum license to make sure you're a good corporate citizen before you actually radiate anything into the environment. And also, you are creating a radiation hazard, if, particularly if you're talking about high power systems. So that's not necessarily always ideal. And there are also other defense contexts and implications by sending out a blast of radio frequency energy that means you are also evident to other people in your environment. So there's some constraints that you need to think about. So what we're doing is a technology called Passive Radar. It provides the same information product as an active radar, so you can work out what's happening around you, but we don't transmit. So instead of sending out that blast of radio frequency energy, we're listening to background sources of radio frequency energy that are already in the environment and sending out energy that we can use instead of us transmitting ourselves. So a good example would be broadcast television or broadcast radio. These are sources that sit in the background they act like big floodlights. They illuminate everything in the near environment. We can listen to the signal that comes from the transmitter, and we can also listen to the signal that bounces off of all those objects in the environment and form that same picture, if you will, of what's happening. Okay. That's fascinating and a great explanation. So thank you for that. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. 
So where does the technology come from? If you look at a linear progression of researchers who have taken that on, where does the technology come from? The idea itself is not a new idea. It's been around for a very long time. And if you really go back into the history of radar, we're going back to the 1930s. And so for a bunch of reasons, people had kind of looked into it over many epochs or eras of interest. And for very good reasons at the time, it wasn't the technology that would be offering benefit to the end users, right? There were better solutions and active radar was one example that they went down for a variety of reasons. But when we get to what's happening today, we're seeing increasing spectrum congestion and that's putting a lot of pressure on the radio frequency spectrum, which means turning on an active radar is getting harder in both defense and commercial applications. So having the ability to do what we call primary surveillance, that is surveillance of an area that doesn't require cooperation of the objects you're trying to detect, is still really beneficial, really valuable, but it's getting harder to turn on active radars. So passive radar becomes a really attractive technology. Okay. Now, do you need an environment? And I want to get to how the company was formed in just a moment, but do you need an environment that is congested with radioactivity or can the system work in a desert, you know, a low population area? It's a great question. So I think you're absolutely right. We're talking about a technology that leverages pre-existing, in most cases, third-party sources of radio frequency energy. So our performance does depend on the environment. And so the specific answer to your question is it depends, which is not necessarily a great answer. So we've actually built software to do modeling and analysis to say where we think our systems work really well and how do you choose the transmitters for the different areas of interest you're talking about. But broadly speaking, while there are still what we call RF austere environments still on the earth, they are getting harder and harder to find, right? Because I think as a society, we're a noisy bunch. We are making a lot of radio frequency energy out in the environment. And it's also got a context of application. So have we run passive radars in very remote areas? Absolutely, we have. But again, what are we trying to see? How far away are we trying to detect objects? All those sorts of things come into it. Okay, I can see an immediate application in defence. So I think defense is where you have put your initial energies, right? So Absolutely. It's in our our name. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And it's in your DNA. That's where you guys came from. So 100%. So that's the start. But talk me through some of the commercial applications that might be out there. And in terms of addressable markets, is defense a bigger market than, you know, civilian commercial or is it the other way around or are they, you know, what are we looking at? You're right. The defense use case having a radar that doesn't transmit and you know has sort of some obvious advantages in a defense context. So we can put that aside. I think when we talk about the commercial opportunity, the way we sort of see it is where do we think we can have the most impact? And what we're kind of recognizing with what's going on in the world is that we're seeing all these fantastic technologies and services come out that are built on the back of new technologies that really are changing the way the world kind of operates. And I'll give you kind of two examples of what we're seeing there. So I've already mentioned the drone situation. Like if you go back 15 years ago and told people that we would be using drones in the way that we're using them now, I think people would be very surprised by that. You know, it's almost uh, akin to the uh, smartphone type analogy. And I also think we haven't actually crossed that transition fully yet. I think we will see a further proliferation of drones to provide services that everyone really, really wants. But When you talk about increasing the volume of traffic in the airspace at that level, we're going to generate a massive amount of complexity, right? And in that complexity, you want to make sure that you're doing a good job of understanding what's going on and managing that traffic accordingly so that we don't have 
things kind of go wrong. Now, if everyone plays nicely and cooperates very well, fantastic. That'll get quite easy. But if you're talking about people who are either careless, clueless, or criminal, then you can't necessarily rely on perfect cooperation. So you need the ability to surveil that environment through a primary surveillance mean to make sure that everyone's kind of playing nice. So that's drones. And I think the other one that we also look at actively is space. What's happening with things like SpaceX and the whole Starlink constellation, we're seeing a huge proliferation of launches and objects going up into space. And you know, I think a lot of that mass to orbit is actually going to go up and stay in low Earth orbit, which is one of the smaller orbital spheres. And so we're seeing huge increases in traffic. So we've got a sensor that actually can surveil and monitor what's going on in low Earth orbit. I'm wondering, to what size? You're not talking about space junk. You're talking about those small CubeSat type thing. You can track them? With the nature of the sensor and where we're at today, we're probably focused on slightly larger objects. But that's, I think, a key point because it's the larger objects that are more dynamic and maneuverable, right, at this point. Now, as we scale our technology, which we are doing, the size object we can see will come down quite significantly, right? And so I think we can get down into the CubeSat space. It's a function of altitude also that comes into it. But I think having more observations more often about what's going on on orbit will help us to do better space traffic management, particularly as we see increasing volumes of traffic and increasingly dynamic behavior because everyone's trying to avoid each other. Okay, we've talked about the technology. Let's talk about the company now. You had a long career in defense science and technology, Solentium or the, the Solentium. Yeah, a bit, bit, bit over a decade. That's right. Over a decade. And then you're a spin out from. DSCG, the first spin-out, I believe? A slight qualification. I don't think we're the first spin-out from DSTG. Well, the DST kind of history, right? So I think we're probably the first in maybe 20 or 30 years. So obviously the name changes have happened a few times over. So you, you could say we definitely are the first from DSTG, but probably not the, uh, the predecessor organizations. So talk me through, what does the company look like now? How's it been funded? You know, how many employees? Where are you based? Where are you up to? Okay, so Adelaide-based company, we have predominantly bootstrapped the organization. We've grown it mostly through organic contracts and grants, although not that many grants. We have grown from two people to 60 people. We have got a couple of offices here in Adelaide, but we do have some remote workers dotted around the countryside. And we've also got our Oculus Observatory, about an hour and a half's drive from Adelaide here. That's where we're doing our space situational awareness sensor. So we're looking at all the things in low Earth orbit that go overhead. Okay, and then in terms of the productization, commercialization, customers, where are you on that journey? Yeah, so we think about three market segments. Defense, we've spoken about it, sort of number one with a bullet. That's the reason we actually started the company and made the decision to step out of DSTG. We also think about the explicitly dual-use nature of space domain awareness, space situational awareness, whether you're talking to either defense end users or commercial end users. But for us, it's the same kind of core technology that we're offering there. And then we have the straight commercial applications as well that we're pursuing. Okay. There's a whole bunch of things I want to talk to you about, one of which is the experience of spinning out from a research organization and also going through the CSIRO on program. Before we do, though, your own background. I find this kind of fascinating. You've got a double degree. Have I got that right? You've got electrical and electronic engineering on the one hand. That's right. And Japanese on the other. That's correct. So uh, University of Queensland in Brisbane. So just talk us through that. Japanese was a passion of yours. Engineering was a passion of yours. And you couldn't decide between the two. 
So yeah, I think I've always had kind of uh, an inclination towards the uh, the STEM disciplines right growing up. But I grew up in a small town in central Queensland and I think maybe a town of about 5,000 people sort of thing, right? And so mining community. And it just so happens my mum was a bus driver and she would take people out to the mine site every day and pick them up. And she came home from a bus run one day and had in her hand a, a brochure saying that the American Field Service, AFS, was running a, an exchange program and did I want to have a go? And so I kind of looked at it and went, oh, yeah, why not? And so I, <laughs> for a, a bunch of reasons, thought maybe I'll go and live in Japan for a year as an exchange student and check that out. And, you know, small country town, right? We didn't have any languages other than English being taught at school. So I knew no Japanese at all and just decided to head overseas for a year in high school to go into an exchange program. So what year was that? As in like year 10, year 11? It was between year 11 and year 12. So I'd finished year 11, basically repeated year 11 in Japan, came back and did year 12 and then went off to uni. What an experience. Uh, it was fantastic, yeah. Okay, so as an influence on you, without getting too personal about it, how do you think that shaped you? You pursued the engineering, but just the going out into the world and seeing new things at a young age, how do you reckon that kind of shaped you, the person you are now? I think it absolutely broadened my horizons unambiguously. To go from a town of 5,000 people to a city of 7 million, where you couldn't speak the language at all you know, at the starting point, was something that just, yeah, changes your worldview quite significantly. You know, it's hard to know what the long-term implications of that have been, but it's kind of given you the courage to probably just go and actually have a look at things and try out different things throughout your life. I take it going to Japan from a small central Queensland town. I mean, that would be mind-blowing or mind-expanding anyway, wouldn't it, just from your interest in engineering and all that good stuff they've got over there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Japan's a magnificent country. The people are super friendly. It was a real highlight of my growing up. When we were going through the process of the exchange program, they spoke about the fact that you were going to kind of go on a, you know, ebbs and flows throughout the year. For me, it was a little bit of a different experience because honestly, I just think the whole year was was amazing. I think there was maybe one night where I was out in rural Japan. I looked up and thought if I was home right now, I'd be able to see a whole bunch of stars. But because of the light pollution over there, I couldn't really see any stars. I went, oh, that's a bit different. It was a momentary sort of lull on the year, but that was probably the, the low point, which I, I wouldn't describe as that low. Wow. I think that's uh, what an incredible experience. I got to go to Japan earlier this year with the family, and yes, what an incredible place. All right. Now, let's get back to Salentium Defence. Actually, just before we do, when you left university, what was the route that you took into defence science and technology? Yes. So, because I did the double degree, I actually wound up becoming a a mid-year graduate when I finished my undergraduate. And so, it's not the best time of the year to be looking at graduate intake programs. So my honours thesis supervisor kind of encouraged me to put in for a master's scholarship as I was finishing and, you know, because there weren't that many opportunities from a a graduate recruitment standpoint, I opted to continue on with my studies and so jumped back into university, started the master's program and that's actually where I tripped across the whole idea of biostatic radar, which is what a passive radar is a form of and got involved in that as a research topic, flipped over from doing a master's or an MPhil, you know, to a full PhD, and that became my topic. And so I was doing that, and as I was working through my PhD in biostatic radar, got to know some folk in then DSTO, Defence Science and Technology Organisation. Wound up doing a stint actually in Italy as well as part of my PhD. And when I was over in Italy, I saw a job come up at DSTO asking, you know, for radar researchers. So I threw my hat in the ring and was fortunate enough to secure a position at DSTO and was able to kind of continue on with some of the research threads as well. Okay, so you've progressed that uh, research, you've progressed the technology, reached a point where it could be 
commercialize, spun out in, into the operation that you're running today. That's right. Yep. Now, in case you don't know, this podcast is sponsored by the CSIRO. This is a fortuitous moment because I am very interested in this and not pre-planned either. You went and did the CSIRO's on program, which is kind of a yes accelerator for entrepreneurs within the ranks of CSIRO and other research institutions. How was that? I mean, it was a new thing. I think it was part of the National Innovation and Science Agenda Malcolm Turnbull had put together in 2015. What did you get from that? So lots, first and foremost. And so I guess, how was it? Our lived experience was it was excellent. How we found ourselves in it was probably also quite unusual because as we, working in defence, thinking about commercialisation, we went to our senior management very early on before we'd done really anything and said, hey, look, just want to declare that we're thinking about this just so that we were managing any potential conflict of interest probity type issues. And they were very supportive, the senior management of DST, and that's where they actually identified the On Accelerate program as something that would support our learning and development to make sure we were kind of looking at this in a really structured way. And so we got made aware of the On Accelerate program. We still had to apply for it. We still had to go through all the selection process. And I think we were the first, as I understand it, non-publicly funded research agency team. So first non-CSIRO publicly funded research agency team and the first team from Defence to go into it. So I think we were also a bit of a uh, an outlier for the On Accelerate community as well. So they had to kind of rejig it just a little bit. But no, the experience was fantastic. It really did set us up, I think, for the success that we've been able to you know, subsequently enjoy. Not only did we get the specific training around the approach that you can take towards engaging with potential investors, but it's the lean launchpad style thinking. It was also the networks that we were able to establish through that program that really did help us a lot. So on all fronts, it was a really positive experience. So you obviously already had an interest in the commercial potential, interest in the business, the entrepreneurial side of, of what this was offering. So when you went into the on program, were you learning new things about that? Was it eye-opening in a way that if you've spent a lifetime in research and then you go into that environment, is it like, oh my God, here are all these hurdles I need to jump, but I can do this? Or is it literally just about the networks and about the basic how do you talk to an investor skill sets that you learn? So I think how you talk to an investor, like for us, as I said, we have predominantly bootstrapped. We're not against talking to potential investors, but for us, it's about the outcome we're trying to achieve, right? So just making sure we're clear about that. But what that also taught us is just how to actually communicate and promote your idea. And to me, it was a little bit, how could I engage with potential customers in a similar way and pitch ideas to potential customers? How can I do business development through that mechanism? What we learned through the On Accelerate program, and I think Probably the one note to make with respect to the research and development we were doing at DST was it was very experimentally focused. So we did a lot of field work, a lot of representative environments alongside candidate and user type people to make sure that what we were developing was relevant. Now, we sort of were doing that for a decade and it was, and I mentioned this to a number of people, it's like I had to go into one accelerate to actually have the language to describe how we had been kind of operating. It was a lot of customer understanding value proposition type work that we were doing in an experimental way while building the technology. And so I wish I'd done the program sort of 10 years in advance so that before I even started the DST journey, even with staying inside DST, it was, it was excellent. Oh, that's fascinating. Look, you're running a startup successfully, two people to 60 people, but I'm quite sure there's been hard times along the way, lots of difficulties and all the stuff that you've got to overcome. Did they talk about that during the on program or did they talk about blue sky and green fields? 
Uh, no, I think you have to be honest with yourself. It's uh, You're definitely going into some uncharted territory and, and they are trying to give you the skill sets to broaden your experience base, right? So it's targeted towards people with a research background. And so there definitely is a lot of development and support to think about things that are not research related that you're going to need to sort of start and run a business. But it's also just teaching you that you need to understand a bit about it yourself, but also you need to develop your networks to make sure you've got access to the right people with the right skills at the right time to kind of overcome some of those challenges you're going to find along the way. Okay, let me ask you this now. Like your company and yourself, your background personally, you're like a poster child for this kind of new dual-use tech focus that seems to be emerging a little bit in this country in defence industry development and in industrial policy more generally in Australia, there is a lot going on. There's a lot of activity, a lot of energy being thrown at it. So as a company that's come out sort of on the defence side, if you like, because your focus is your early opportunities in defence, you will have been looking at things like the Defence Strategic Review and some changes. What do you make of these changes? There's ASCAR and a changed capabilities and acquisition sustainment group what does it look like now compared to what does it look like before? And are we making some progress here? What's going on? So my reading of the Defence Strategic Review, I would say, was 80% positive and probably 20% uncertain. So not necessarily negative, but I just didn't know what the implications of some of the language was, right? And so I've been trying to work that out myself. I think Defence is pretty honest with itself about the need to innovate faster, the need to acquire capability faster. And I think they have a really positive intent through initiatives like ASCA or the Australian Strategic Capabilities Accelerator with what's going on with uh, the Capability Acquisition Sustainment Group, you know, CASG 2.0 type rhetoric, I think there's a real positive intent to change the way that they are operating and doing business to make sure that they can do these things in a faster, more efficient way aligned with the Defence Strategic Review. But I think they're also honest with themselves about the scale of the challenge, right? Like you are talking about a large government agency, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of culture and history that they need to be able to shift the organization into be able to operate effectively. So positive intent, I think the rhetoric was really strong, still waiting to understand how it all plays out in practice and in reality. And to be honest, that's part of the risk that we would see in the SME space is that when there's uncertainty and a large government agency like Defence, that can lead to delay. And delay is the enemy. Like that's the hardest thing to weather. If your contract slides six, 12 months, that's a huge impost, right, that you've got to be able to navigate. Okay, I'm going to start drawing this to a close. I'm talking to James Palmer, the CEO and co-founder of Salentium Defence. Before I do, as a poster child for a dual-use technology, there does seem in government policy a gap between the efforts being made by the industry side, the Department of Industry, the Minister for Industry and Science, and the defence side. Now, companies like yours will deliver capability and commercial value and all the rest of it and capability to defense on both sides. So it doesn't seem like there's an easy fix to close that gap between those two portfolios. How do we do that? That's an excellent question, James. And I think if I had the answer to that, we'd be pursuing <laughs> it, right? Um, I, I, I do, but I, think, and I, but I think the opportunity might actually be in industry, right? So, you know, as you say, we've got services and systems that we can support both commercial and defence applications with. You know, so the endpoint might actually be industry actually doing that and bringing it together in a meaningful way. That's an opportunity we think we would be happy to pursue. So if we look at the industry side of things, 
you know, change the government last year, so you change the government, you change the countries, including industry policies. Things have been a little bit on hold as structural changes have been made. There's an industry growth program. They're still hiring a CEO. There's a National Reconstruction Fund just appointed a board. They're still hiring a CEO. Those are the mechanisms that you'll be targeting for investor, like as a bootstrap. How do those things work for you? Oh, we'll look at them as opportunities, no doubt. Again, it's the devil's in the details, so is salvation. We're engaging in it early to understand what's coming, but we also want to see what the detail is to make sure that we can position ourselves such that it is strategically aligned. It allows us to achieve the outcomes we're trying to achieve and the impact we're trying to achieve. It's not necessarily saying we're going to use all of those mechanisms, but wherever they line up, we will absolutely be looking to take full advantage of them. Broadening that out, I think it's, you know, with what's going on with AUKUS as well, it is a good time and there's a lot of interesting and exciting stuff, but it's also we've got to see what's happening, right? Obviously, we've had the Torpedo Act go up in US Congress back in May. That speaks about some of the ITAR EAR reform to enable export of US technology to Australia. I think there's going to be benefit to that. But from my standpoint, we're not ITAR encumbered. We are a producer of Australian intellectual property and Australian capability. We want to be exporting that to other markets. So when I look at the Torpedo Act, I'm actually more interested in probably the Section 11, which talks about the amendments to the Defence Production Act to have Australia listed as a domestic supplier. You know, what does that mean for us as a business? How can we go to market in countries like the US or and the UK and be competing on a level playing field with the local industry? That's what we're kind of looking at as well as a big opportunity coming. I really shouldn't have said I was going to start winding this up because I was going to ask you, you know, do you want to make a comment about AUKUS? But it opens up a whole new field of conversation. But let me ask you this. This notion that industry can lead some of this is interesting and it's particularly interesting in relation to the AUKUS Pillar 2 type technologies of which you are one, I guess, as an, an emerging type critical technology. But is it the case that those changes to US treatment of export controls, like the defence production out of like ITAR, as you were mentioning, they can have a bigger impact than some of the programs that our own government puts in place? Absolutely. I mean, when we think about it from a market standpoint, obviously we are an Australian company and we're very keen to make sure we're creating impact for Australian customers, but the US is the biggest defence customer in the world and it's, you know, in terms of the commercial side as well, there's a lot of opportunity there. And so things like AUKUS, and the proposed changes to legislation is something that is, as you say, potentially going to have a bigger impact on us than what's just purely happening domestically. All right. James Palmer, CEO, co-founder of Salentium Defence, thank you very much for being on the Commercial Disco. We're going to wish you all the best for the immediate future, all the best commercial success. This is what we're all about on this podcast, is finding these Australian companies, Australian-developed tech that uh, is taken to the world. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, James. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.